The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when an innocent quest for transcendental drug-infused consciousness expansion goes too far? Would you go gently into all the colorful bursts of the visible light spectrum and stop? Or would you press on, pressing so far that the only thing that remains of your tenuous humanity is the shadow of pure impulse and that girl you keep locked up in a classified research facility? Well, let's find out. Because today we are floating through Panos Cosmatos's 2010 film, Beyond the Black Rainbow. So recline back, grab your delicid, and expand your mind as we gaze into the spectral wonder of shadow and light. Brought to you by The Old New Age, The Malleable Ethics of Cold War Era Research, Name Dropping Noriega, The Limits of Consciousness, and Drugs. And, of course, our safe word today is sobriety. Anything to add, Benji? Oh, I got really high to watch this, and God, the microphone, it can hear everything except itself. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space! Boy! I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. London, how are we today? Yo, Benji, I am fucking fantastic yeah. once London, again. I don't have time to argue about my name with you because we have got to get really quick into this really slow movie. Oh my god, we do. I have so much to say about Beyond the Black Rainbow. I'm so excited. When I say slow, folks, this movie makes 2001 A Space Odyssey look like Armageddon. Okay, this is a slow meditative movie we have to say that up front because damn i'll give you a five word lightning summary of this movie and then you can give a more words than five five word lightning summary of beyond the black rainbow a woman leaves a building that's true eventually she's not gonna do it for a while <laughs> so our lightning summary we're gonna start out with here is that this is gonna be a film in which a callous scientific researcher observes a young girl with psychic powers, who has been imprisoned in a Cold War-era MK Ultra research facility. And yes, eventually, this girl is going to escape the building, and the researcher will descend into madness. But more importantly than this minimal skeletal plot is that it is going to be done in the most gloriously lit creation in cinematography history. I'm going to throw that down there. I'm going to do it. A lot of the reviews that we have seen for this film... All seem to just say, like, this is too long, it's too boring. Though they also seem to have some sort of acknowledgement of, well, this is long and boring, but I think this might be for somebody. It's just not for me, though. Yeah, I actually pulled some of the reviews because they amused me. So there was William Ghost of MSN. He did like the film's surreal atmosphere and synth score, but he said it was... Not my cup of crazy. Oh, and then oh. Lou Lemonick of the New York Post called it 
the movie equivalent of gazing at a lava lamp for nearly two hours. Yeah. Which, I okay. mean, not wrong. I'm into it. And then Rene Rodriguez of the Miami Herald apparently wrote the review that the movie looks like it was lit by lava lamps, so more lava lamp okay. references, yeah. scored on Moog synthesizers, written between bong hits, and acted underwater. That sounds like None a lot of praise. None of this is meant as praise. Oh, that's not praise. Oh, no, Everything I, she just said is amazing. Deliberately stated, none of this is meant as praise. And I'm like, this all sounds like praise. Yeah. Another reason that I think this movie does tend to be a little bit cruel is that not only is it slow, it's very esoteric in a lot of ways. There are so many references intertextually being woven in to what is unfolding in front of us. Some of those intertextual moments are going to be other science fiction works, and some of them are going to be just pieces from actual global history. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot to demand of your audience when you just weave this intertextual tapestry and say, here you go. I just fever lit this dream for you. See, I will offer the argument that I don't think that context is terribly necessary to enjoy this film because I know very little about MKUltra, Timothy Leary, you know, any of that nonsense. And yet I still love every frame of this film. But then in my case, I think that I'm a nut for cinematography, for the dissecting the like level of film grain that you've seen in Image. Yeah, although I do think this movie becomes a lot more accessible when you know the history behind it. So that's one of the things we're going to be looking at, or I guess two of the things we're going to be looking at is a lot about the cinematography today and a lot of the intertextual references that are woven throughout. So is that your best thing then, the cinematography personally i mean the cinematography is part of that the best thing about this movie is that it is a beautiful meditative piece and that's not something that we get from cinema very often that's done on this level there are a lot of films out there that are slow and meditative but they're not as, as beautiful this movie is so beautifully constructed so easy to watch. You just enter a trance-like state when you are watching this thing, and that's a rare beast uh, when it comes to cinema. So, similar takeaways. My best thing, even though I do love the intertextuality in this film, I do still have to agree that the cinematography is really mm -hmm. what is so spectacular about what is happening on the screen, and not even just on a composition level, which will in itself be astounding but just on its interplay of light and color theory. So we've got the trifecta of cinematography happening here. We've got the composition, we have the color theory, and we have the light. And it's all just working really, really well. The worst thing then being when that goes away for about six minutes at the end. Just That's <laughs> when I really feel the slowness of this film. This film does not feel slow to me until we hit the final six minutes. And then I'm like, oh, God, walk across that grass faster. Like, what are you doing? And I think it's because what happens at the end is we get the beauty of what's been happening for the entire film taken away from us a little bit. So we will see how that all plays out, I guess. Yes, we will. Also, who the fuck is Panos Cosmatos? So yes, some pre-establishing notes here. This film is directed by Panos Cosmatos, 
And he is also the director of Mandy, which just came out a year or two ago with Nicolas Cage. 2018. Yeah. That sort of got him a little bit more recognition. Rightfully so. He was born Panos Cosmatos to father George Pan Cosmatos. So I think he's even named a little bit after his father. And you might even know his father's name because his father as well was a director in Hollywood. Well, started out as an Italian director. Uh, he directed slightly different films than Panos did. Slightly. did Rambo, First Blood Part Two. And Cobra and Leviathan and Tombstone. You know, movies like this. Yeah, so 80s and 90s filmmaker. (laughs) And then his mother was an abstract artist from Sweden. And what becomes kind of cool about this parental lineage as well is that this movie, he's remarked several times in several interviews on how much both of their artistic styles influenced his own directorial style as this combination of bigger action blockbuster ideas from the 80s and then mixed with Swedish abstract art. Mm. Probably my favorite aspect of his childhood influences on this movie, though, are the stories he tells of this video store he went to, Video Addict, and looking at the cover art to the VHS tapes to movies that he couldn't rent or watch because they were R-rated. And I love that because I just connect with that very much because that was me when I was a kid. In my small town, there was a video rental store that my parents would go to, and I would see the artwork on those VHS tapes that looked so badass, like the cool sci-fi, chrome, shiny artwork that would be on those things. And never watched them. And Panos has kind of explained this too, that if he had gone back and rewatched those to get inspiration for this film, it wouldn't have worked because the actual films themselves are not too great. And that also leads into something that Panos describes about this film that I really love. He says this is not really a retro film. It's meant to be a remembered film. Panos said that like he was creating a film that he thought would have been one of those VHS tapes when he was a kid, just going off of his own imagination based on the cover art and maybe the descriptions on the back. So this isn't a film that you would have seen in 1983. This is the film that you wish you could have seen in 1983, a film that should have been but was not. Yeah, and it does have a sort of almost Mandela effect feel while watching it. And I mean, that uh, some people describe this as an outrun movie, and outrun is an aesthetic that's often described as a retro futurism. So it, it's what we wish the 80s had looked like, and it's what the 80s were hoping the present times would look like. So yeah, that kind of works too. Outrun is a very apt descriptor for this film, both aesthetically and musically speaking. Oh, yeah. Oh, I will talk about the music. Will you? But first... Oh, I will. Don't you worry. (laughs) All right. So the film opens. How does it open? In 1983. We slowly have the numbers 1983 coming up to let us know it's 1983. Yeah, you want to talk about the goddamn pacing of this film. We don't even get the date all at once. The way that the date comes up really sets the tone and the pace for this film because it's about 30 seconds of just waiting for the numbers 1983 to come up on the screen. (laughs) And then after you get that, we are then shown someone putting a VHS tape into a, a VCR playing it, and it's a video from 1966. (laughs) So we're bouncing back pretty damn fast. Uh, And 
we the first thing that we get is this introductory video like you've just signed up for this new course or this uh, you know new lifestyle and this is the video that you're going to watch a video narrated by Dr. Mercurio Arborea. Hello. Yes. I am Dr. Mercurio Arborea and here to help you find in a word happiness. Yes. And they have methods of finding happiness, uh, benign pharmacology, situational controlled therapy, lots of ways. Uh, it's a different way to think, a new way to live, a perfect way to believe. There are three major things that are being set up here with this opening clip that are going to continue to exist heavily throughout the rest of the film. So we're just going to set them up here a little bit, and then I will talk about them sure, throughout. Sure, sure. But the first big thing that this is referencing is the New Age spiritual enlightenment movement that started to gain a lot of traction in the mid-1960s, but is then really going to take over the 1970s. And this grew in large out of a lot of the 18th and 19th century occultism and spiritualism. So we did touch a little bit of those topics in Color Out of Space and Midsummer a bit. This idea that there was this occult knowledge, mesmerism is going to have an interesting influence, and mysticism is going to have an interesting influence. And it's this movement of people who are circumventing other forms of pre-established canonical organized religions to really find a new icon of spiritualist pursuit, which generally originates from inside the self. There's a lot of ideas about the self as a certain type of divine that can be unlocked. And that becomes very, very interesting. And we see this language happening here with Dr. Arborea. We also have a very strong influence of drugs, particularly LSD and other psychedelics, which are really going to come to a head in the 60s and 70s. This is going to become all the rage in psychiatry and pharmacology. They are going to conduct a lot of experiments to see if this could be a therapeutic drug. I believe that its trade name as a medication was Delicid. So this was, yeah, just in circulation. And people are going to start using this drug. It doesn't become outlawed for distribution until 1968. So throughout the 60s, it's legal to use, technically, and people are going to use it. I will also say here that there are a couple of big influential people that are going to use it and seem to be who Mercurio Arborea is directly referencing, but he's going to have a big scene later. So we'll kind of get into those people in a little bit. But meanwhile, there's also this thing called MKUltra. MKUltra was a project developed by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agencies who in the 1950s were like, okay, so there's this new like LSD drug on the street, and it seems to have a lot of promise for consciousness research. And they were all like, I wonder if we could maybe use this to like mind control and torture people. So they set up an entire system of tests across the U.S., and they would also outsource this. And they just dosed people with LSD to see what would happen. And they're going to do this in a bunch of different ways. And we're going to see these throughout the film. So I will be pointing out some of the different MK Ultra based LSD research, as well as the pharmaceutical research and the spiritualist stuff. So we're getting all three of these things set up right here. So yeah, 
long way of saying like the shit is like an intertextual trifecta. After this video that inspires a 30 minute lecture from London, we then get into our opening credits and begin to get our first taste of the awesome music and visuals we will get in this film because the opening credits are done in my notes I said a great eye lidless read in opening credits and we start to get this music. And this music begins, and we hear that good synth action happening as an eyes blue iris continues to open and open and open and always fading into that opening, looking deep down within every sinew of the iris of this eye. It's just setting such beautiful visuals happening here. And this music begins to ease you into things, as you'll see. As we continue, I just fucking love this this music. It's so good. It is so good. I'm actually glad you brought it in, because I'm like, yes, let's do this. Now, this score. In order to get this score, this is actually going to be... This is like guitar or it's like woodwind instruments or something like that, or, you know, it's... Oh, there's, there's no, so much synth going on no, in this. Synth, you say? Is that... Yes. What? I don't... What? So synth? the really cool thing about this score is that it's actually going to be analog synthesizer stuff rather than digital synthesized. So that's really cool and is going to give it an extra interesting sound. So the main things that were used on this soundtrack are going to be a Prophet 5, which is really the first real polyphonic synth that is used in composition. It came out in 1978, so it's going to be time period appropriate to our 1983 setting. We have a two-voice Oberheim, a Moog Taurus bass pedal, a Krogh CX-3 organ. The Krogh CX-3s are tone wheel based or mimic the tone wheel sound. We also have a Mellotron. And I also really like Mellotrons because they are crazy. Have you interacted with Mellotrons ever? Um, are those are those like the Casio keyboards I had when I was a kid? They are keyboards <laughs> or they look like keyboards. They have this replaying tape that kind of runs through it so when you push down on the key it actually stamps onto this magnetized tape what's crazy about the mellotron is just they are so high maintenance they are like the divas of keyboards because <laughs> any type of shift in temperature or humidity is going to affect that tape and it's going to change the sound it's going to change the frequency it's going to change the pitch depending on how hard you push down on a key is actually also going to fluctuate the pitch that is recorded. Because of this, they were never really meant for studio recording. They were more meant as something you could manufacture for kind of private and personal use in the home and get your stuff on record. But they're super fun because, yeah, no note quite sounds the same on a melodron. So you get these weird fluctuations and you also get this certain type of aftertouch that also happens often when you're kind of playing on the Mellotron. So it was a high maintenance machine. It's going to have a very time period appropriate thing because once again, it's invented in 1963. It's going to start to wane in popularity, but then interestingly enough, be kept alive by the band Radiohead because they are big fans and users of the Mellotron system to get that weird synthesized variation in pitch without having to do it digitally so my casio keyboard could make some trumpet sounds sometimes 
fuck yeah well i mean that's that's cool too buddy it, it could it could do that so yeah but yes why this soundtrack sounds as cool and weird and just overly synthesized as it does but still very warm and rich is because yeah all of these are analog components and we're using a lot of things that are going to just vary the pitch slightly and give it that kind of aftertouch lingering kind of ghostly effect and that's None of that is really a digital effect. That is just because of the machines they're using. Well, speaking of Super things cool. that are not digital effects, after we have these opening credits played over this eye that's continuously opening its pupil, we get a close-up of an eye. But we don't really just get a close-up of an eye. The image, if you're not familiar, it looks a little muddy or dirty. We begin to pull out, and the image begins to be less uh, muddy and dirty. That's because... We have started zoomed in on an eye, but zoomed physically in on the cell of film, the frame of film, and that is highlighting all the grain that's here. And grain in this film is going to be a very big deal. I can go into more detail here and there, but they are using 35mm film to make this, which was not, was not a dead art by 2010 when they were filming this thing, but... The way that they're doing this is by using as little of the 35mm film as possible. One, to save on the film that's used when shooting, you know, makes it cheaper to shoot film, and also creates this extra grainy image that is very organic and just more natural feeling than I think digital noise from a digital camera would be. Yeah, and when it gets upgraded on a 4K television, the grain is insane. The eye that we're seeing belongs to a young woman by the name of Elena. And as we'll go along, we'll learn that Elena is in some sort of institute, uh, presumably the Arborea Institute, where she has been for some indeterminate amount of time. We'll find out exactly how long she's been there. But she, she is going to go see the doctor, Dr. Niall, who is, would you call him her therapist, her analyst, her psychologist, her torturer perhaps all of these are possible it really seems like what he is is he is an institutional researcher who is observing the product that he has in front of him and this also is going to be historically accurate in a strange way although first we actually have a bunch more intertextual references to fiction stuff as well sure he's going to have her come out but when he radios the nurse for her he says warm her up they do say warm her up but before they say warm her up they introduce her as patient 1183 or 1183 there were 1182 patients before her also possible but (laughs) when they say 1183 it's in reference to 1138 or THX 1138 which was a George Lucas film from 1971 also set in this dystopic research facility situation in which people were not allowed to have emotions or free will of thought and how this was controlled was through a heavily medicated drug program and one of the patients or the main character in it is going to be patient THX1138. And so here we have Elena being patient 1183. Panos is going to kind of have little insider references like that throughout. He was 
influenced by that film heavily. We also are going to get a lot of certain color palettes that he has remarked on coming from very specific places. The blue hue that's going to be in a lot of scenes, Cosmito is called the night mode, which he has mentioned in interviews, was specifically modeled to hue match the freezer room scene in John Carpenter's Dark Star. So they just hue matched that uh, gel filter. And then the rest of the color palette is going to be mostly lifted from Michael Mann's films, particularly Manhunter in 1986 and The Keep from 1983. (laughs) So they went through those and looked at what gel filters and color palettes they were using to have this color palette that we're going to get in this movie, which really uses almost every color of the rainbow. I think it actually does use every color of the rainbow. We're going to get all of them. Well, I mean, like, very prominently, right? We're going to get these filters that are going to showcase different colors. They feel neon, but they're also not quite neon. And that is very much a Michael Mann type of aesthetic and palette. So I definitely can see that reference. And then, like Friedkin on The Exorcist, him and his cinematographer, Norm Lee, are going to spend a lot of time looking for inspiration from different abstract artists and also comic artists. The other two big major influences on this film are going to be Jean Mobius Girard. Yeah, Mobius! Yeah, Mobius. And he is a French comic artist, also notable for storyboarding and concept designing Alien, Fifth Element, Tron, The Abyss, The Unfinished Dune Project with Jodorowsky. Mm. So he's great. And then Frank Frazetta, who's a Brooklyn fantasy artist. See, I I don't get the Frank Frazetta connection because there are no boobs in this movie. I mean, if you look at anything Frank Frazetta drew, the, the man enjoyed his bosoms. That's all I can say. It's, yeah, he, he liked pecs, too. I'm sorry. You know, he, he got them all, really. Tended to sometimes have a slightly blurred brush aesthetic. And I wonder if that's what they're maybe taking from. I could see that, too. That sort of blurry aesthetic. But yeah, so now we have Elena here in that Michael Mann, John Carpenter <laughs> composite of light and color. And... We're getting a little bit of reference to some of the drug trials that were done in the 1960s. Particularly, there is going to be a place called the Allen Memorial Institute. The Allen Memorial Institute is located in Quebec, and it was an institution that was part of the MKUltra experiments, Subproject 68, They set Donald Ewan Cameron in charge of this project. He is a psychiatrist who's not Canadian by origin. He actually grew up in a whole bunch of different places, did his schooling in a whole bunch of different places, and is really, really interested in memory, consciousness, and how one could possibly effectively manipulate the brain to control and understand the process of conscious and memory. That seems to be a very heavy influence for Dr. Nile here, is as this Donald Ewan Cameron substitute and others like Cameron who were in charge of these MKUltra sub-projects that did a lot of fucked up things to people <laughs> during the 50s and 60s in the name of seeing what you could do to their consciousness and possible expansion. Yeah, I definitely see references to brutal treatments here. Elena is led into this room. Elena is a person who is just almost a mannequin herself has to be led in and sat down is very unresponsive to anything that 
her nurse does or the Dr. Nile does. He keeps trying to get some reaction out of her. Nothing. He begins to bang his pen on his clipboard very loudly, deliberately, and he can see that is having some sort of effect on her because she begins to tear up a little bit and begin to slowly cry. And he seems quite happy he was able to elicit that response from her. Yeah, because that's data, right? And noise stimulation and repetitive noise stimulation was one of the more used forms of stimulus in some of these LSD tests. So one of the things that they would do, particularly at the Allen Memorial Institute, is that they would stuff these people full of LSD, mostly children, actually. There was a big sort of child component at that particular institute. And yeah, they would stuff them up with LSD and then they would play certain sound stimulus on like a loop to see if that type of repetition with that mind-expanding drug would do anything. Spoiler alert, it didn't as far as consciousness expansion. What it did do is that a lot of what MKUltra ended up doing with their research, rather than finding ways to expand human potential for consciousness, is actually re-channel all of their research into human torture tactics. So a lot of the ways in which we still torture people, both militarily and politically, actually came out of MKUltra's testing. Noise stimulus or repetition to noise stimulus tends to be one of those to this day. So he's happy that he's torturing her here in eliciting a response in some capacity. Hooray! Yeah. Fun times. (laughs) Fun times. Elena, having completed this session, Elena is led away by Margo, her nurse, and Margo is beginning to have a nosebleed. And normally, you know, we're used to Stranger Things, where it's the person with has the psychic powers that gets the nosebleed. But here, uh, you know, they're throwing the nosebleed out at, at victims in this movie. Yeah, that was kind of a fun change, because we do get the sense that Elena might be doing something a little bit to the nurse. The nosebleed trope with psychic powers Ugh, does go back. So tired. We get it in Stephen King's Firestarter, the movie version, in 1984. It's not actually going to be that in the novel, so it's that movie um, uses the nosebleed. Mm. But Scanners in 1981 is actually the first known film use of the bleeding nose with psychic powers. If you've never seen Scanners, I guarantee you've seen at least three seconds of Scanners because a guy's head blows up, and that's the three seconds everyone has seen. Which three seconds, but uh, the head blowing yeah, up the head, three seconds. Yeah, the, the single greatest cranium explosion in, in the history of cinema. Yeah. Yeah, we should do more Cronenberg <laughs> or any Cronenberg, actually. All right. So, yeah, we get a little bit of a nosebleed yes. caused by the and burst capillaries, the strain. Dr. Nile heads home in what I called the 80s mobile, and it's this beautiful car. I looked it up. It's the Lotus E-Spirit L3. It's also known as the the car that James Bond drove in For Your Eyes Only, and it was a luxury sports car in its day. Well-maintained versions of it today will go for like $30,000 used, though apparently they are really hard to drive. They're very low to the ground, so you feel every bump in the road, and you have to put some force behind the stick shift. They're all stick shifts, no automatics. So, yeah, you have to really love driving manual operation cars to be behind an e-spirit. Yeah, that car did look like it was set really, really low to the ground, mm-hmm. which is great for the shot because it takes up only a minimal lateral part of the screen, and then we get all of the atmosphere around him. Oh, yeah. So it was a good the in- choice. The interiors but... in those things are insane. The seats are almost like hammocks. You're 
almost laying back as you drive the thing. Like, you're almost downright horizontal, and your arms have to be, like, way out to, to get the steering wheel and see the road. So, uh, cool-looking car. I don't think I want to drive it, though. <laughs> uh, we get home to Dr. Niles' place. Barry Niles is his full name. And I noticed an interesting thing about his home life is that it's the only time I think we get, like, warm orange colors throughout the entire film, suggesting that this is a a warm, safe place, which is typically what orange, warm light is used for in films, but that's not really the case here. This is not a happy home. He gets in, his wife was sleeping, though she says, like, no, I was I was meditating. Yeah, whatever. Is there dinner? Oh, yeah, there's some brown rice, asparagus. Yeah, that, that sounds great, honey. And it's an uncomfortable scene to watch because their faces are framed very strangely. It, typically in conversations, when two people are talking to each other and you're cutting back and forth, one person is looking right to left on the screen and the other person is looking left to right, you frame them so their faces are looking towards the negative space in the frame. But here, the negative space is behind them, so you're always having to shift where you're looking in the cuts. Barry, you're looking at the left side of the screen. Cuts to his wife, you have to shift your eyes over to the right side of the screen. And it's very disjointing and, I mean, obviously, I think intentional here because it's uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, they violate that eyeline tracing rule for sure. Oh, yeah. Big bad ways. it does ways. feel very deliberate. Yeah, he goes into the bathroom to take some pills and he takes... Ten pills, I think. He has them all lined out. And the way that we see those pills is also another great example of the cinematography in this movie and how often it uses a very shallow depth of field. I'll try and paint in broad strokes here, but this movie used lenses that have a an aperture of 1.1. An aperture is the back of the lens, the thing that can open and close and determine how much light you let in. The wider that thing is open, the more light gets in, and you also don't have as much space from the camera to keep in focus. If you close the aperture down, then you get less light, but you can keep something that's a foot away from you and the thing that's two feet away from you both can be in focus. If you open the aperture up, you lose that and maybe you can only keep something within an inch of a certain spot in focus. And these pills are lined up and you can't see the front of them in focus, you can't see the back of them in focus, but the middle part where the capsule seams come together that's in focus. So they're using lenses that are allowing them a depth of field of like a half inch. It's super shallow. And that's often used continuously throughout this film to just isolate elements that we want to see, isolate characters very often. And sometimes just to keep things, everything out of focus. There are many shots where nothing is in focus and it's intentional. Yeah. And it is super cool. So the insert shots that we are getting. <laughs> oh, let's talk about some insert shots. This sequence and the rest of the film. But it was really, this is the first scene that really just lets you know that we thought the inserts on 8mm were an art form. No, no, no. The insert shots in this are a goddamn abstract art <laughs> masterpiece. Just watching this movie feels very much just like you are walking through a postmodern art gallery and images are just, instead of you having to walk through the art gallery, the film is walking these images by you. And these shots are just going to be so interesting in their color and their composition. And there's going to be something abstract 
because of this shallow depth of field where it'll focus, yeah, on these line of blue pills and it'll take you a second to say, what am I looking yeah. at, right? Because all you can see is the pills. It's like it exists in some white void and there's all that's in this white void are this line of pills. And that when we cut to Barry Nile, he is just taking a pill, taking a drink of water, takes a pill, takes a drink of water. And eventually it fades into him smiling like walking Phoenix's Joker at, at himself. Yeah, it's a creepy, creepy smile, but he can smile. The inserts that we get around the place are there is a book on the table from Arborea mm -hmm. or his sort of research book, little kind of bundles of sage, I think some like joints or pot of some form. And so we do get the sense that they are still these practitioners of this 1960s consciousness expansion spiritualism movement in which they are still kind of following the teachings of Arborea, and especially that his wife is meditating, mm. right? This idea of I'm, I'm just searching for something. I'm searching for that enlightenment. I'm searching to feel something uh, in the way that the he is with his pharmaceuticals. Very dial, he hears this, he's like, yeah, whatever. Where's the fucking food? Where's the food? Where are the drugs? I don't give a shit what you're doing. Just, I want food. Oh, God. Speaking of insert shots, that's also used in the next scene as well. Uh, in this next scene, we go to back to the clinic where Elena is laying down to sleep. She gets up, walks over to the wall, leans over and looks at a, a monitor that's just on the wall that has some sort of like rotating screensaver that says Arborea on it. But she touches it and much like Firestarter is able to manipulate the television. Because yeah. there's a character, uh, yeah, the dad character in Firestarter can manipulate the television with his mind powers. So can E.T. Yeah, we get some, like, insert shots of a judo match going on. Uh, Elena settles on an old 1930s black and white cartoon. And this shot that she is reacting to, this cartoon, does have a very creepy, sinister undercurrent because it's this... Most cartoons of the 1930s did. Oh, yeah, that's fair. So on uh, this <laughs> cartoon character is just getting pulled and prodded and bottled and caged and sort of forcibly moved about by other individuals that are in this cartoon. And so it does have this very non-consensual control mm -hmm. feeling. And we can read that in the cartoon and we can read that in her situation. And, and then we flicker fade to red, which flicker, is going to be a thing that they use yeah. all the time. Yeah, it's not just a slow fade down to red. It's kind of a like white and red flickering together until we get to a solid red. And it takes us into another therapy session with Dr. Nile and Elena. And he's just so sad. He She never got to meet her mother. Well, he's... He says he's sad. He doesn't really give a shit. Though he, the most lamentable thing to him is like, oh, it's a shame you never got to meet her. She was hot. Yeah, he's like, your mom was super hot. Yeah. And I would do her. Oh, by the way, you actually kind of look a lot like your mom. Oh, not that, I not that she looks too. like her mother, but he's like, you just look more and more like your mother every day like ew oh oh man that's some fucking grooming language going on there that's wrong man yeah it's deliberately super uncomfortable but he offers her a photo would you like to see a photo of your mother and she blinks a little bit and he's like oh that's a yes okay great well you're gonna find one in your bed so you go enjoy that yeah they've got their nonverbal communication down it's great yeah 
And these flicker fades to red that are going to continuously happen, because we're going to get another one, Mm -hmm. is this particular passage of time. We know that time has passed every time the screen flicker fades to red. What even is time in this movie? (laughs) Yeah, in a kind of fade to black sort of way. But the red is an interesting choice. To me, it, it does kind of conjure this idea of like the insides of the eyelids in terms of just sort of shutting the eyes mm-hmm. in a bright lit environment. But it's also going to have a really cool optical effect. Throughout this entire film, we're going to be using a lot of diametrically opposed contrasting colors on the color wheel. And blue and red are going to be two of the biggest, most used colors. But If you think of the optical experiment of looking at a very bright, solid screen of a certain color, a neon green works really well for this, and the bright red also works really well. And then you look away from that screen or you blink a little bit, you're going to get that contrasting color remaining residually in your eyes. It sort of flashes Mm -hmm. a little bit for a little while. So what is going to happen every time we get this really stark, bright red engulfing the screen before it fades again is it's actually going to have that optical effect on the eye and that blue is going to linger and it's really going to punch up those blues in the following scene to really allow the contrast of when we have that red filter and seeing the shadows and the shades. So this movie is actually doing a lot of interesting stuff to optically fuck with a viewer's mm-hmm. eyesight as it watches and it really just punches up the colors. So as bright as this movie already was shot, it's actually going to visibly look brighter and look more contrasting because of some of the things that it uses. And this flicker fade to red is is one of those optical tricks. Uh, Yes. Another optical trick that's an example of the filmmakers choosing to fuck with the image and the audience as much as possible is the next scene where Elena is in her bed. She finds this small black and white printed on paper photo of presumably her mother, though you can't really see the image too well. It looks like a, a still frame from Bygotten, which was a, an experimental 1990 horror film that was all high contrast black and white. But in this scene, there are so many lens flares, not just, you know, the lens flare yeah. where we have like orbs of lights in a diagonal pattern, but just hazes on the sides of some of the frames and then just milky haze on the top and the bottom sometimes. And every time you see that in this movie, that's very deliberate. The cinematographer, Norm Lee, who pushed very hard for this thing to be shot on film and in two perf, which is that method I mentioned earlier of using as little of the frame as possible. No, most films are done on four perf, which is a lot more of the 35 millimeter physical film, whereas here it's a very small bit. But he also rigged flashlights and other bright lights on just mounted arms that were affixed to the camera for the sole purpose of shining the light back into the lens to create those flares. And apparently while they were making this film, Star Trek from 2009 had come out, and the biggest criticism of that movie was that J.J. Abrams completely overdid all the lens flares. I personally loved it. I think he he could have done more, but he didn't. Never have too many lens flares. Never too many lens flares. And... Panos Cosmatos uh, thinks like we do, where he thought to himself for a second, oh no, are lens flares over? Are people tired of that? Nah, fuck yeah. people. What fuck would people think? I want my lens flares. So they yeah. they stayed the course and put as many lens flares in this thing as they could, and the movie's better for it. I yes, say. I love lens flares. Now, I love them so much. While Elena is looking at this incredibly grainy black and white image of what hopefully is actually her mother, 
Niall is watching her room on a monitor. This actor, Michael J. Rogers, does Sinister so well. I absolutely love the way that he plays in this film. It's fascinating to watch how demented his intentions seem to be and the intensity that he he takes it with. Yeah, it's a very interesting, cold, reptilian performance, and I respect it. Yeah. And he, uh, we have another shot of him walking through a beautiful hallway. Just all the hallways in this film are oh gorgeous. God. They have this like beautiful sterility to them. And what's amazing about these hallways that impresses me so much about the production of this film is that they're all the same set. They're all the same hallway. They're just relit and redressed depending on where geographically the characters need to be. Elena is now waking up. Her heart is just beating really loud. Like her heart, she has a powerful heart. And Elena maybe is more powerful than we know. And just as it seems like she is leaning on the glass, and another beautiful shot in this film, leans on the glass and seems to concentrate really hard. And then a flash, an image of a glowing white pyramid somewhere else. And that pyramid, oh, it hits her. And there's just pain from this idea and the image of that white pyramid, Elena just falls over. And fascinatingly, one of the things that Panos said about casting Eva Bourne was that she was one of the only actresses who seemed to understand that this white pyramid was having an effect on the character and played it appropriately. Everyone else he auditioned apparently just didn't get it. But Eva mm-hmm. Bourne understood it, and it really comes across well in her performance. And I, I love that. And it's scaring her. It's She crumples on the floor and is terrified of what's going on. And flicker fade again to red. Yes, so we seem to have this glowing pyramid somewhere in the bowels of this research facility that glows white. And it is some sort of power science crystal something that has the ability to be turned up and down. And when it's on, it seems to suppress her potential, her psychic potential a Mm -hmm. little bit. So it's, it's keeping her subdued. The triangle is going to be another really interesting symbol from the New Age spiritualism movement. There were a lot of triangles that were popular in mysticism that the New Age drew from, particularly since the New Age movement was a lot about the idea of the new holy trinity of mind, spirit, and body. Mm. And that was usually represented with this sort of triangle. So that's going to be another quasi-collapse of quasi-psychology, quasi-spiritualism, and quasi-drug culture (laughs) that is (laughs) happening here to keep her suppressed. It's being used against her. And he, Niall, is there again taunting her, just, God, looking so fucking evil and demented, and says, like, I can help you find yourself. And Elena begins to roll her eyes and this beautiful effect begins to happen where it seems like the world is shaking because we get this like vertical blur happening. When I first saw this, I thought that this was something they did in post, but this blurring effect, the shaking is an in-camera effect. Panos and normally the cinematographer set the camera up on this, they just called it a shake rig. And it's the entire camera, the film, you know, the camera, lens, the film magazine, everything was on this rig that could vibrate the camera up and down really fast like a a paint mixer at a hardware store and create this blurring effect. And thank God it turned out okay. They said that there were a few takes they did where the film was completely dislodged from the gears inside the camera. So 
risky decision, but it paid off, and it's a great effect, and it's just showing that Elena is really pushing something here. And we hear Elena, sort of, we hear the words, I want to see my father echoed out. And this is the only time that Elena says anything. And even then, she's not really saying it. She's just thinking it very forcefully. The rest of the movie, Elena's completely mute. Yeah, she communicates telepathically. Yeah. And you can tell this shaking, this whatever it is that Elena is putting out, is affecting Niall. And he's trying very hard to pretend like it's not happening. But you can see him wincing just a little bit and waits for it to die down because Elena's getting tired from, I guess, using this power. And he breathes a sigh of relief and just says, oh, Elena, you you can't, though. You're too sick. If only you weren't so sick, but, you know, you just can't. I forget. I always use this term improperly. Is this gaslighting? <laughs> what do you mean? There's no such thing as gaslighting, Benji. There's not? Oh. Oh, man. No. I don't know why I thought that. No, no, no. You're not crazy. <laughs> No, but that is, this is kind of an example of gaslighting, is it not? Uh, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, he's being... I know you want to continue to gaslight me, but we do have to explain this. <laughs> Stop making up words, Benji. <laughs> You're not being gaslit. <laughs> what, what is that? Don't be silly. All right, so, yeah, he's being super skeezy, especially since a lot of what he's talking about is we all have multiple selves. There are more parts of you. And I could help you access those parts. I could help you be something greater, something better, right? which is the ideology of the Arborea Institute in general in the first place, this transhumanism ideology of a pharmaceutical-based transhumanism that we could be more or expand our consciousness. And then he makes the declarative statement, I know who I am. That's what gives me power and confidence. And the fact that he thinks he knows who he is, that's going to be interesting later. But yeah. we are setting up this very interesting, almost Jungian psychology moment here. And I will talk about that a little bit more after the drug trip scene. Oh, please. Yeah. You have <laughs> that to look forward to. Yay. <laughs> what happens next? <laughs> Margot, uh, <laughs> in a scene that you can start to watch leave, go get a drink, and come back, and the same thing is still happening. Margot is walking down a hallway. The the nurse, uh, who's kind of been a dick to Elena anytime that they interact with she each other. She is a dick. I don't even know why she's such a dick. Yeah, Panos described this character as a really asshole bank clerk. Apparently that was the direction he <laughs> gave to the actor. Was it, you're, you're an asshole bank clerk. You like the fact that you can make someone's day a little worse. That's Margot in a nutshell. Have you ever been to the DMV? Just do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Margot's heading home, but she hears some beeping in another hallway, walks down this black hallway, and just sees something on the wall. She's like, oh, what is this piece of shit computer doing? And hits this orange button, and a drawer opens up. And she's looking at the drawer. Huh? What? What is this book in here? I better take this book out of this drawer and 
flip through it and she starts to see a lot of charts, a lot of uh, figures, a lot of numbers, a lot of diagrams of the human anatomy. A lot of vaginas. And it just keeps getting more and more weird and fucked up until she realizes she is reading something that she really should not be reading, closes the book and pushes it back in the drawer, tries to close the drawer as fast as she can, drops some cigarette ash and runs the F out of there. What do you think this book is all about, London? Okay, so yeah, now we're starting to see some of the more fucked up Allen Memorial Institute stuff. Finally! This is not exclusively the Allen Memorial Institute, but it is one of the more prevalent, well-known examples. So mm-hmm. That's why we're, we're going with it. During this experimental phase of the Montreal experiments, some of the things that they did, and largely to children and underage patients, were some of the things that we see in this book. We get some sleep deprivation referenced in the book, we get drugs, and we get sexual abuse. And there were later trials that looked into some of the sexual abuse that happened at the Institute, and a lot of it seemed to possibly be linked to blackmailing of other particular political officials. So they had a lot of materials of different political figures interacting with underage patients, and that those seemed to be used to blackmail for further continuing of research in certain capacities. These were kind of in the later stages of the Memorial Institute. And this is also not, once again, exclusively restricted to that. That was something that kind of went on a lot. But this idea that, yeah, there was something a little bit darker going on at this institute. Not that unethical human experimentation isn't already dark in and of itself, right? That's kind of like the weird thing to me too with this nurse's reaction where she seems to be horrified by what she's seeing. And I'm like, all right, what was it that you thought was happening here? Because (laughs) you take this drugged in prison girl from her sparsely furnished room and she's been there her entire life to another sparsely furnished room to be audio tortured and interrogated and hit on by a researcher for a couple of hours. And then you bring her back to their room like you were already complicit in some sketchy stuff. So like, what is it here that's shocking you? I don't know. So we get this Torture 101 book in the trappings of mysticism symbology, because we got a lot of like that third eye stuff that's going on. We get a lot of chakras pointed out throughout the body. It kind of felt a little bit like the Donnie Darko time travel book that Donnie Darko finds in the director's (laughs) cut. It's like, this is how this works. So yeah, once again, this collapse of mysticism and science and unethical research it's all coming together yeah yeah and margo that's just she can't handle that margo she's just like ugh, that's too much i i need to go yeah, yeah so she bounces after leaving her cigarette ash around and Niall's gonna find it at some point and get a little pissed about the fact that she found his book and i'm like Dude, you put it in a drawer down like this long, completely chrome black hallway with a blinking red light. Yeah, and all you have to do to get the book is hit the blinking red light. One button opens the drawer of super evil secrets. Yeah, it's like nice going, Central Intelligence Agency. Like, what's (laughs) what's going on here? That's why, like, I have a suspicion that he actually wanted her to find it for some reason. And it's part of his test to see, because... (laughs) 
the whole system and just see where it goes from there. So if most of MK Ultra's research and a lot of the just LSD research in general was, can we use this to engage in mind control of human individuals? And it did show that people under LSD were more susceptible to suggestions. So that actually did seem to be a thing. But mind control was like a big component of MKUltra experiments. So I am wondering if we're going with this Arborea Mysticism Institute had been turned under Niall's leadership into more of an MK Ultra project. If this is just yeah, another little observational experiment in mind control and general embodied control of the nurse, can he introduce this type of stimulus to her and still have her be faithful and loyal to the Institute? So I do think mm-hmm. it's kind of a test, especially since this blinking red light is kind of a beacon at the same time <laughs> she just happens to be walking down the hall. This does feel like it's a very controlled participant observation experiment. Mm-hmm. And maybe part of her compliance and her apathy throughout most of this is derived from an earlier series of sort of mind control tests that yeah. he has enacted on this one nurse that seems to be present and part of his staff. And Look, I'll say this, as evil as this place is, it has an awesome vacuum system because Niall scoops up that ash and he just puts it in this hole in the wall and it's like, whoop, like, sounds like a Namak tube, like firing up because it just sucks away the napkin. And I want that. Like, how do I get that installed? I do too. I actually have seen this vacuum system before in a handful of Italian movies. So I'm actually wondering if this is a part of a type of, or similar to a vacuum system that some Italian homes might actually have, because Hmm. I've seen this in non-sci-fi based Italian films. Margot is working at a a computer, and I always laugh when I see this because it shows her typing in subscribe melatonin. I thought, oh no, not melatonin. Oh, heavy drugs. Oh no, it'll be easier for someone to get to sleep, but they physically cannot overdose on it because melatonin doesn't work that way. Yeah, I just always thought that was funny seeing that. But Niall comes in and is just breathing down her neck because... Yo, he knows that she did something. She kind of knows that he knows one of those situations. And he says, uh, yeah, I think Elena, she's hiding something. You may want to check on that. Uh, okay, sir. Okay. She's got some contraband. Contraband. So how do you think she got it? You know, I, I just don't know. But I'm looking into that. Yeah. And- once again, we know that Niles gave her the photo of her mother, right. so this is another test. Mm-hmm. He's all... just all about testing. You know, he's a scientist. All a test. Okay? He's a pure scientist. Margot heads over to Elena's room as everything goes into day mode, because <laughs> the lights change, and it says, day mode, renewal is easy, or something like that. Brings her some food, and takes the picture that Elena is holding close to her, still staring at, like, Oh, is that your mom? Did your mom die? Yeah, it's good she died. Crumples the picture up and walks away. Yeah, once again, like, being a bitch for no reason. Again, evil bank teller. She's an evil DMV bank teller kind of person. Just make, however bad they can make your day, they're happy that they can make it that much worse. So here your parents are dead. Yeah. Good. Like, Jesus, okay. And she thinks that she's just going to walk away from this, having made the day worse. But oh no, Dr. Nile, he's got a trick up his sleeve, because he turns a knob, and that white pyramid that we saw from earlier 
it now fades down. The light of the pyramid is fading, and suddenly Elena feels a little bit of energy about her, begins to roll her eyes, and the world slowly is shaking. It's not going all the way quite yet, but Margot knows that something is wrong because she turns around to look back at Elena and with horror in her eyes just says, please, please stop. Don't. Please stop. The world begins to shake as it did before. And unlike the first time where it just seemed to make Dr. Nile wince a little bit, here it has the side effect of making Margot's eyes explode. Elena's understanding of relative morality and the legal justice system are probably fairly flexible <laughs> growing up as she has as a science experiment. So I, I think she gets a pass mm, on this one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> pretty much. And she takes the picture back, you know, triumphantly now covered in Margot's blood. She starts to leave her room, but Niall turns that white pyramid back on and that really hurts her and she falls down and begins to sob. And you've got her just laying there. That's no good. you got to run cleanup. So Niall goes to his computer, types in run program, greater than symbol, sentient knots, and cue the greatest synth music ever. As this is playing, we see that white pyramid, and fog is beginning to descend on that white pyramid. Cut to some other foreign room, where a giant, tall, thin, red figure in a crazy-looking motorcycle helmet is in a giant mirrored room, and heads out and picks up Elena, hits her with a tracking symbol on her neck, and puts her back to bed. Yeah, oh my god. This room. Yeah. This reflection cube yeah. of wonder. I, I have to imagine the way that they did this was that one side of this was a one-way mirror where they could stick the camera like right up to the glass and you just get infinity reflections in every direction. So it looks like there's just hundreds upon hundreds of these weird red people. Yes. It's, but it's just the one. Yeah. It's it, That's all you need. That's, that is all you need. But yeah, it does just look like this army for a second. And... It is such a beautifully composed shot that, like, my heart stops a little bit yeah. every time I watch it. Oh like, God, I can yeah. feel the arrest. You add, like, that visual with that music that we had there. My God, you could see why we love this film so much. Yes, and this is our sentient, which is a curious word. <laughs> this word is going to be derived from a composite of the word for consciousness oh. or sentience. Wow. And then not is a suffix that goes on a lot of different words coming from the Greek word for sailor. Mm -hmm. And we apply that to a lot of travel specific words, kind of like astronaut, right? So cosmonaut also. This sentient yeah. is going to be this pioneer, traveler, expansion, horizon figure in consciousness and sentience. And so that's kind of cool, because we're going to learn a little bit more about him later, but he does seem to be this artificial, biologically constructed figure. And so this is the, the new horizon, the exploration of the new horizon in consciousness. Yes. And super cool. This creature puts Elena Back in her bed, Niall is watching everything through a glass door bathed in red light. Again, just looking so sinister. 
And having done this sometime later, we don't really know how much later it is, but he heads off to a gloriously wood-paneled elevator, takes the elevator down yes. into a basement with a bunch of fluorescent hallways. There are some walking sticks, glass cases. It's not really clear what those are for, but I'm sure they have a purpose. He heads inside to another room, and he finally sees Mercurio, who we saw in the beginning, but he is now an old man, nearly dead. Yeah, but he's still alive, hanging out on a black leather couch, watching some projector images Uh, of the 1960s. And it's probably one of five videos that he watches on repeat all the time down here. I'm trying to remember. It is of, now that I think about it, they're West Coast images, right? I'm wondering if they're of the San Francisco Bay Area, which is really where a lot of the Hmm. birth of the New Age movement came out of. So he might be reliving the glory times of the Bay Area. I can see that. I kind of got some East Coast Miami vibes from these uh, videos, but who knows? They could be of anything, but San Francisco, like the prime days that he would look back on for San Francisco make a lot more sense. Uh, the, this weak old man tells Barry that the trappings of the mortal world are but a distraction, Barry, which is Dr. Nile's first name. And Dr. Nile, I just, again, I love this actor's performance here because he's just nodding like, yeah, okay, sure. Like, he's heard this a million times. He was a true believer at one point, but now he's just going through the motions. And it's time for a flashback. The flashback, flashback to end all flashbacks. Flashback, 1966. And unlike the slow reveal of the 1983, this 1966 hits the screen (laughs) so fully in the most French new wave font (laughs) I have ever seen. Proceed. It It is painfully French, this font. I do have to give it that. We're now in a white void. This sparse white room where Arborea is now preparing a younger Barry Neal for a great journey. So Barry has a third eye painted on his forehead here. What's the third eye all about, London? Uh, Well, the third eye is all about that unlocked potential of consciousness and expansion. So once again, theming, right? It's the inner eye. It's the one that might interact with the divine or be able to see the divine. Or for some people in other forms of psychic pursuits, then that's what their third eye engages with. But it is this symbology of the inner mystical potential of the inner divine. Yes. The look of this flashback sequence is fascinating. It's in black and white. And when I say black and white, I mean literally black and white. There is no gray in between it. It is just two tones, blown out whites and super dark pitch black. Yeah, Mr. Cinematographer, how the fuck was this made? (laughs) So this was fascinating to read about because they originally filmed this hoping they could get the look just on film natively. And they overexposed the film by about six stops, which is about as much as you physically overexpose a film. But when they went back and rewatched it, they found that it wasn't completely pure white. And that's just a trick of film. Film and digital, the main difference is there. Uh, I've kind of touched upon this when we talked about Midsommar and the difficulties of filming outdoors in bright sunlight on digital cameras was that you can easily overexpose bright sunlight on digital. But film reacts in a more logarithmic way to bright light. You know, with digital, you add twice as much light, your image gets twice as much brighter. 
With film, you add twice as much light and it gets maybe a half bit brighter. Add four times more, it gets 75%. It's kind of like, uh, I forget the term for it, but it's like one of those curves in math where the line is always approaching zero, but it's never getting there unto infinity. That's kind of how celluloid film reacts to bright light. It never goes fully white. So when they got this back, it wasn't the image that they wanted. So Panos had this film, digitally scanned, brought it into his Macintosh and altered the image that way to get the high contrast look that he wanted. And then, this is the part that blows my mind, he used a digital red camera and filmed his computer monitor. Just filmed <laughs> what he had done on his screen and they use that footage in the film. And when I first saw this, there were moments I thought to myself, oh, okay, I think this is digitally altered because I see artifacts here and there's kind of a weird smoothness to the, the motion on screen that I don't think would come from film. But I had no idea that they did it that way. That I've never heard of anyone doing, at least not in a film of this style, to just film their computer monitor and then say, okay, that, put that off-screen captured footage into the movie. And they took that digital footage and took it to the Technicolor Labs in Vancouver and they scanned it onto film <laughs> to be inserted into the finished product. So, yeah! Which is crazy because, yeah, computer monitors generally have those lines of light, which is why it's really hard to take a picture of your computer screen <laughs> without having it look a little like almost visual Doppler effect or whatever, where it gets really dizzying. So, um, yeah, I wonder if scanning it back onto 35 millimeter is what maybe creates those white stripes that we get in the scene, but that those are once like the oscillating light patterns? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. But the reason that they were going for this super high contrast look is because Panos was inspired by a film called Begotten. I mentioned this film earlier. And it's a very trippy, no dialogue film from 1990 that's all in super grainy, black and white, high contrast film. Just to give you an idea of what the film is like, it starts with a five-minute shot of someone chained up against a wall, cutting themselves, and you later find out this character is credited as God. So you're watching God slit his own wrist for five minutes to start this film off, and then <laughs> to start a he film. is made love to by a woman credited as Mother Earth, and the rest of the film is about a mob of people trying to kill her son. Really, it's you know a, a grittier version of Mother by Darren Aronofsky, basically. There's an endorsement. <laughs> so, yeah. Panos was taking inspiration from some crazy places, and that's why he was trying so hard to get this just high-contrast black-and-white look, and... He had to jump through over a few hurdles, but he got there. And we get this amazing sequence of young Barry Nile taking some, I assume, LSD or acid before he is submerged into this black goo. And right before he goes completely under, there's a woman there who wishes him luck. And Dr. Arborio says, Bring home the mother load, Barry. And Barry descends into this goo, and he has a bad trip. He does have a bad trip. He's having a bad time. He starts to see things, and we're now back in full color, but it's like we'd rather not be, because we're seeing very 
fucked up things. We're watching skulls melting and appearing to inhale smoke from all around them. Every color of the rainbow you can imagine is flying around us as other skulls seem to melt upwards. And the one special feature on the Blu-ray explains how this is done. Uh, The Blu-ray to this thing is actually very bare bones. There's no deleted scenes or commentary. There are just trailers for other movies that I've never heard of. And this one test shot of a melting ballistics skull. And it's just ballistics gel. If you've ever watched Mythbusters, you know about ballistics gel. You can melt it. It's rubbery. It simulates human flesh fairly well and crash test situations. And they made a lot of skulls out of this and melted them in amazing ways and used that footage. And it's a fucked up thing to watch, I have to say, when they do it the right way. And it is absolutely beautiful. And it's inspired by a 1963 French New Wave film by Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Contempt, or Le Mépris, for the French speakers out there. So, Contempt. Jean-Luc Godard hated filming Contempt, which is also kind of fun. But (laughs) there's the Battle of the Gods sequence in particular that inspired this bad trip. Uh, Yeah, the look of the flashback sequence, the black and white, that was from begotten from 1990 but the style of imagery that we're getting in this bad trip sequence is from contempt specifically from a sequence where we're shown a film within a film where fritz lang playing himself more or less shows some stuff that he has shot for an adaptation of the odyssey and it's all this odd footage of these greek statues being rotated and narrated over as if they are actors and then we see real actors against these like bright mono color backgrounds shooting arrows at each other and one guy gets an arrow in the throat and that's the sequence it's a trip but the thing that i find interesting about taking from contempt is just what contempt itself is fundamentally about. According to Godard, who has said, quote, the story is about the story of castaways of the Western world who one day reach a mysterious island whose mystery is the inexorable lack of mystery. (laughs) This is a very Godard thing to say, first of all, but also it is interesting to think about within the context of this film as well, this idea of these cast-offs from this 1960s, 70s, Enlightenment, New Age period that have been searching for unlocking the mystical mysteries of something, right, of human potential, of consciousness. And we're getting the sense here that the mystery itself might just be that there is no mystery, right? There's just and this... God, is that horrifying <laughs> if you're yeah, seeking Yeah, and that, that the might be the most horrifying thing ever. And that's what we get from this really bad trip that Barry Nile has experienced, that he might have, in a martyr's sort of way, the French film Martyrs, Ooh. he has looked into the heart of God and he has seen nothing. Right? He's looked into the heart of himself and he has seen nothing. Yeah. And that has created this very yeah, bad trip all around. He emerges from the black goo. We're now back into this high contrast black and white. And he vomits, I guess, whatever it was he was submerged in. And a woman is nearby. And she approaches, tries to comfort him. And Barry just jumps up on her and goes full vampire and bites her neck. And she bleeds profusely. Dr. Oboria walks in to check things out. And Barry just looks very sad, like, I'm sorry. I killed her. It almost looks like she bleeds like water or milk, though, because what comes out of her (laughs) neck is, like, clear. Yeah, it's very strange. You would think if it's blood red in this 
high contrast world that we now live in, it would come out as black liquid, but it's mm-hmm. bright white. So, yeah, what is that? So, yeah, she just bleeds some sort of maternal milk, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Because there's nothing grosser. Funny you should say maternal, because as we find out, this woman is actually Elena's mother, because now we're going to meet baby Elena being held by Dr. Oboria, who looks at the infant and says, your mother's sacrifice back into the whatever won't be in vain, and then submerges this infant into the black goo, which seems like a strange choice because it didn't go well for Barry, so I don't know how it's going to go better for a baby. Yeah, also this black (laughs) goo seemed to be part of Barry's trip, not necessarily something he physically went into necessarily, so we're sharing drug trips here. It's communal hallucination. Sure. But Dr. Arborea is like, hey, look, your mom's dead, but it's cool because you are the next figure of our transhuman enlightenment movement. Like, you are going to be something superior. And this also has some precedent. So one of the crazy experiments that happened during the 1960s LSD research was testing the effect of LSD on pregnant women. Oh, God. Mostly to see what would happen if you dosed someone who's pregnant and how that would affect their offspring. There were multiple reasons they wanted to look at this. It was actually kind of fun. You can still find a lot of the medical write-up articles from the 1960s. The first one I came across was 1968, The Effect of LSD-25 on the Chromosomes of Children Exposed in Utero by Maimon M. Cohen and etc. And yeah, but you can find just a ton of research from these pregnant dosing experiments. So these are not a secret. Firestarter by Stephen King is really going to popularize this idea that part of why they were doing this was to try to create a generation of little psychic super soldiers. And to an extent, there were a couple of sub-programs of MKUltra that that was what they were trying to do. It didn't seem to work. But that seems to be what's happening with Elena here is that she is a part of this, yeah, MKUltra slash New Age experiment that is trying to create a little psychic super soldier by being birthed from parents who continued to use LSD <laughs> in an in utero situation. Why not? You know, just, just to see. It was just... the Cold War, you know, like the Russians were closing in and like if we didn't have some sort of psychic super soldier child, what would the world become? You know, that was the fear. Watch out! Of Cold War America because... If Americans are ridiculous and terrifying enough, like we have to try to create psycho <laughs> or psychotropic psychic babies. We can't let there be a it's like Doctor Strange love. We can't like there can't be a bomb gap or there can't be a there can't be a psychic baby gap or something. Yeah. So yeah, that's what she's coming out of is this period. Back to the present. Yeah. By present we mean 1983, and Niall is preparing a needle to inject a drug of some sort into old Dr. Aborea's feet. He almost does it into Aborea's arm, but Aborea's like, oh, no, I don't want to I don't want to see the track marks. You got to do it to my feet. Meanwhile, there are track marks all over his arm. Yeah, it's like, dude, you're way past the point of trying to hide that. So I don't know. Uh, but what's interesting is that when he takes this drug, it seems to wake up Elena 
Uh, and Arborea is also asking, like, how is my little darling Elena doing these days? Oh, fuck them good drugs. And Niles is like, she's great because I keep her locked up <laughs> in this research facility and subject her to noise and light stimulus. Constantly gaslighting her. It's, it's she's a, chill. She's fine. Yeah. And he's like, oh, great. And then, yeah, they seem to all have this co-shared moment of sentience. Arborea dies. He, he passes gently into that not-so-good night. <laughs> he did not rage, rage against the dying of the light. Yeah, no, I mean, he was down for it. But <laughs> he also seemed to imply that he was down for it because he had his little speech of disillusionment in a certain way that he is caught in the trappings of this mortal coil and he's ready to ascend or whatnot. Now, I want to break down the Sorobaria dude. Because he seems to be a few different guys. An amalgamation. Yeah, he is an amalgamation of a bunch of people. The two that I'm going to name here are certainly not exclusively the only two, because this figure is kind of a trope from the 1960s and 70s in general, like a historical trope sure, of sure. men who got really enamored with this LSD business and with New Age spiritualism. But two people really stand out when I watch this guy, and the first one is a dude named Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was a Harvard psychologist who led the Psychosilbin Project from 1960 to 1962. Mm -hmm. And he was really into these drugs, these mind-altering drugs. Oh, yeah. So much so that he began to do them alongside his patients. And there was some criticism around Timothy Leary being like, bro, maybe you shouldn't get as high as the subjects you're studying. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to do it, though. He got high in his own supply. Scarface told yeah. us you don't do that. And so at some point he was like, um, or not, he didn't make this decision. At some point, Harvard fired him oh, <laughs> because they're like, darn it all. you can't just be, you know, like high all the time. He's like, but I'm expanding consciousness. Like this is going to be a thing. And so he became this leading dude on the use of LSD as this consciousness expanding drug. He would tour around. He would write some books about it. He would give speeches about it at different conventions and festivals. And sort of, he became kind of like the guy, especially since he had this Harvard professor background, right? It really gave him a certain platform to be able to spread the word of the LSD gospel. He is also going to write a book called Exopsychology in 1977 that expounds on his eight circuit model of consciousness. So we really seem to yeah, be tapping into some Timothy Leary here. Another just really fun trivia fact about Timothy Leary is that President Nixon at some point will publicly describe him as, quote unquote, the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> so that's fun. So yeah, he was a prominent user. But yeah, I'm not sure that the President Nixon's most dangerous man in America thing is fully warranted, but uh, maybe that's the insidious danger, right? Oddly of... enough, when I was really getting into Hunter S. Thompson and watching documentaries and reading about him, he was kind of brought up as a counterpoint to Timothy Leary. Because while Timothy Leary was saying that these drugs were mind-expanding and could open up new realms to us, it seemed like Hunter S. Thompson was saying, these drugs are really fun, but you're not expanding your mind. You're just getting fucked up. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> so so there were... you, needed a, you needed a balance there. And I think Hunter S. Thompson kind of cut to the there is no mystery version of things. Yeah, but Timothy Leary really pushed on this. The other dude who's going to push on this very heavily publicly is Aldous Huxley, the brave new world dude. 
And he is going to, at some point, hear about these medical trials and science trials involving LSD, and he wants to try it. So he's going to reach out to a researcher and say, I'm, I'm your guinea pig. Stuff me with drugs. <laughs> and there is a particularly recorded trip of his that he's going to do in the presence of the medical researcher and his wife is present as well in a way that feels very similar to this flashback scene of having this trio uh. present in a different kind of configuration. It was a 12 hour or something trip. It's all documented. Uh. And after this trip, Huxley became another just big supporter of this idea of the spiritualist or entheogenic is another kind of term that of spiritual use of drugs. But this idea that, yes, LSD could unlock something greater and grander. And he also is going to write a book about this way earlier than Leary, actually, called The Doors of Perception. That's going to come out in 1954. Later, though, he's going to take a bunch of mescaline in his later life and realize, well, no, nah, I thought LSD was the true path, but this mescaline stuff, this is way better. And so then he started to become a little disillusioned as he continued to do a bunch of drugs throughout his life as to whether or not he was actually experiencing and achieving some sort of enlightenment or if he is was just simulating the feel of enlightenment. And that became a big worry for him, which also seems to be a big worry here for Arborea in his final moments, right? Mm -hmm. When he's saying, I'm sick of the trappings of the mortal world. We can't quite access this. Like, I need to move on so that I can access something better. So this was discourse that was actually happening with Huxley. Also, what ended up happening with Huxley is that he was dying of cancer in his later years. And while he was suffering through his cancer, he asked his wife to dose him with 100 micrograms of injected LSD. Uh. And he would die later that day. Oh, yeah. That's false. Because we do see our little Barry Nile. He takes that 100 microgram bottle and he fills up the injection. And it is this clear liquid that looks like it could be an LSD type of thing. LSD is not generally injected, but there is precedent for mm. it being injected, particularly in this case of Aldous Huxley. So these are the two big people that they do seem to be pulling from, but of course there are many others. And we do have a couple of other things with this scene. Barry Nile seems to have this trip, this bad trip that continues to haunt him throughout time. Like he seems to have this flashback and in a way, this could just be a cinema moment of flashback, and he's just remembering it. But there actually is something called hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. It's rare, but there is the possibility of someone who has taken psychosilbin or psychedelic drugs to have certain persisting flashbacks to this moment, whether that's just auditory or visual to hmm. full-on flashback moments. And so that seems to be what he is experiencing here. He had a bad trip and it is continuing to actively haunt him. That's an interesting phenomenon because we don't know a lot of things about consciousness and yeah. the brain and what causes certain people to suffer HPPD over others is kind of a mystery. And so that, uh, yeah, that all kind of wraps into this theme of the issues of knowing your consciousness. And the final thing I will touch upon here in terms of consciousness, 
is going back to that Jungian shadow self that we kind of mentioned. Now, Freud and Jung and whatnot really, as we've discussed before, like don't have much bearing in active psychology or psychiatry, but they still have a big place in literature mm-hmm. and movies and cinema and whatnot. What we seem to have here is this interesting reference to the concept of the Jungian shadow self. That really revolves around this idea that everything outside the light of consciousness is this conceptual thing called the shadow self. It's that which the subject remains ignorant of or rejects about oneself outside of their conscious awareness. And we get him a little bit earlier when he's talking to Elena, right? This idea of tapping into other parts of yourself, which in Jungian shadow self stuff would be the shadow stuff that you could kind of tap into. Yet the shadow self isn't always necessarily a good concept in terms of somebody you'd want to meet and hang out with. But Jung's personal quote on it was that everyone carries a shadow, and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. Given that Barry emerges covered in that almost tar-like substance, completely black and very messed up, I think there's a, yeah, there's a connection there. Yeah, he's dripping with slime. What we have here in this scene is a really bad trip that is unlocking a part of his consciousness, but it's not the part of the consciousness he went seeking, right? It's the part of his consciousness that is this Jungian shadow of the things that he had been perhaps rejecting or ignorant about himself. And it's this dense black rainbow of an expression, this blacker, denser shadow that has been unleashed or reborn in this very gross tar birth scene, (laughs) and then drinking of this like maternal milk from like the veins of the neck. It's all very gross, and it's all very Jungian, and... Yeah, it's curious. So I mean, that's a, a little bit of the stuff that's going on here. And his shadow self is just going to come out to play here yeah. soon. I mean, I, for one, just I'm very glad that Jung and Freud are not a part of modern psychology anymore because my mom's hot. And I don't <laughs> I don't want to have to worry about that. You know, being a, Nor should you. you yeah. know, just, just embrace it. Yeah. One other thing I do want to say about all this is that the context here is fascinating, but what I think is great about the scene and the movie in general is that I I love this even without knowing any of that. I can watch this. I think even anyone who doesn't know about the backstory here can watch this and just see a guy who's been part of an organization for most of his adult life. Things were really great at one point. He was sold on a lot of big dreams. He was a true believer. And now looking back on it and looking back at this frail old man, he just sees that it's all bullshit and reaches a breaking point. And it's a compliment to the movie that knowing this backstory is great, but it's not necessary. Yeah, I, I don't know. I knew all of these references, so I can't no, and that, that enhances them, it for you. I guess, that's, that's... in terms of whether or not it works with that. But I'm glad it works for you. Yeah, no, that, I think that's what it is. It's, it is good. And... There you go. But as we said, Arborea passes gently into that good night. Elena is kind of hearing what's going on, too. She is connected to him. Barry is now in a room alone by himself, bathed in red light, taking everything in. And clearly he is past a point now. And we head 
back to his house, and we mentioned, you know, Reagan really selling us on how bad the Soviets were back in the day, and we're sold further here because now Barry's wife is watching Ronald Reagan on television telling us the Soviets, they're working on these things, they're working on bombs, they're working on some scary stuff, and we gotta be ahead of it. Yeah, and this is an actual speech, it was an actual televised event. It is the Address to the Nation on Defense and National Security, delivered on March 23rd of 1983. So it is 83 appropriate. And this speech is very interesting. You can find the full transcript of it online. And it is a very paranoid, worried moment for Ronald Reagan that people want to cut the national defense budget. And so it's this semi-impassioned plea (laughs) slash argument as to why the nation needs to continue to spend billions of dollars on national defense. This becomes, once again, really interesting here in this moment, because we are seeing this breakdown of disillusionment for Barry Nile, because we get the sense that he is an MKUltra type of researcher, which was majorly funded by the national defense program. And a lot of what drug trials were happening in the 50s and 60s throughout the Cold War, they were done with this very strong rhetorical argument and belief that this was what was best for the nation, that finding a way to expand consciousness was going to help fight against communism because nobody puts communism in the corner right like it's it's terrifying to these people that like oh my god the communist ideology might be around which is weird that like somehow fighting communism would come with mind control but whatever Uh, like we could only be free if uh, mind control is involved we want some mind control it's so cool yeah this idea of mind control of um using them for sort of spies and sleeper agents and all this kind of like really crazy not very scientifically solid ideas, but still funded and attempted all the same. So we have like this movement happening up through like trailing off in the early 70s that we can do all of these things and we can do it in the idea of national defense and research. And we're getting that dying down in the 80s. And we have this kind of last gasping breath of Ronald Reagan and his kind of like Star Wars initiative and whatnot and this idea that like (laughs) no we need to spend a lot more money like the Cold War isn't over so here Barry is getting disillusioned twice in one day right his Arborea (laughs) idol and spiritual mysticism leader has now died on his own supply and has died not becoming enlightened after decades of trying and now we've got Ronald Reagan kind of appealing to a nation that nah like let's keep this cold war going (laughs) and people being like nah though so he's gonna have a larger disassociative shadow self break and he's gonna go to his closet his meticulously organized all rubber bagged closet of leather products do you not do that too I mean, I do. Oh, okay. Because this dude is clearly a leather fetishist, and I respect that. Because <laughs> him and I, we have that in common. Yeah, he's got a jacket. He, well, first of all, before he even changes, he goes in the shower and twists that hair he's had this whole movie. Wig. I, you know, I think it's kind of obvious that he had a wig on because it was immaculate hair. What was not obvious is that his eyes are fake. He takes a an ice pick to his eyeballs, apparently, removes contact lenses to reveal that his real eyes are these strange green globules of eyeballs uh, that almost look like they have pupils and irises, but are mostly just this green mush. 
Yeah, so that LSD trip, it fucked him up yeah, <laughs> on a boy, physical it, level. It got him good, but he does have this jacket he really likes, and I wasn't too sure what the name on this thing was. I think it said Noriega, which was something, right? Okay, yeah, so he pulls out these Noriega custom leathers, and it says on yeah his little garment bag that these are Noriega custom leathers. And this is, weirdly enough, a reference to Manuel Noriega, who was the de facto leader of Panama from 1983 to 1989. And why he fits into all of this is that he was, for the longest time, this like big drug lord guy out of Panama, and he was a CIA informant since the 1950s. I think wow. they like brought him in as an informant in the 1950s. Going back. <laughs> So he was also one of these like big figureheads during this MK Ultra and LSD kind of like drug trials and whatnot. And it's a very curious kind of thing because he just becomes this very interesting symbol for the fucked up corruption that happened during the Cold War, where we have this informant from Panama who is making all of his money in the drug trade, and yet he's also going to be, like, right beside Reagan later as this, like, figurehead of the war on drugs. This is kind of, like, juxtaposition of just, like, oddity, where, like, we have all of these documents that show that the CIA was well aware that he was, like, this big drug guy. And they're like, yeah, it's fine, but he gives us lots of information, though, so it's chill. You know, is he really that bad? I don't think so. I mean, like, it's fine. It's whatever. But, like, and then, so he's going to kind of finagle some things and position himself so that when some certain things happen in Panama, he just becomes the de facto leader in 1983. Mm -hmm. So I guess since this movie is taking place in 1983, he's just about to or maybe just has become this leader of Panama. And up until then, he's been more in the smuggling trade game. So it's perhaps... I'm not entirely sure why specifically single out Noriega, but to have a Reagan and Noriega thing back to back is very curious. And seems like maybe he's also like our Barry Nile guy is maybe in part also working for Noriega. He's got like a lot of or has some sort of connections that maybe the institution has some sort of connections with Noriega's drug supply or something like that. Mm. So that might be where they're getting their drugs. I don't know. But it's a curious little interesting historical reference. It's oh, once I, again all wrapped up in this Cold War paranoia. Yeah. They got to get their drugs from somewhere. But Barry emerges now without any hair, his eyes their natural gooey green color, and his wife sees him and is shocked because he, as she says, you don't have your appliances on and she hasn't seen him without his appliances on, as it were, for many years. And Niall just says, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not good. I went to another world. I looked into the eye of God. It was beautiful, like a black rainbow. Hey, that's the name of the show. <laughs> well, that's back again, is it? Thanks, Arrested Development. Yes. And Harry just says, but you are spit in the wind. So immediately gouges her eye out. And this moment just got me thinking for a second, like, what a black rainbow could mean. And I'm sure that Panos has a meaning to it uh, that he had spelled out. But it's fascinating to me because if you think... I'll expound upon it later. Perhaps, yes. But, like, just to me, and that is art, I'll take whatever interpretation I like to... If we think of a white rainbow, a white rainbow is just a rainbow because all the colors in the rainbow, you blend them together, you get white light. So a white rainbow is just a normal rainbow. A black rainbow, then, would be the opposite of that. 
a rainbow is all the colors of visible lights. Visible lights is a small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So a black rainbow could potentially be something that is a visualization of the rest of the electromagnetic spectrum, which is a lot. It is everything from gamma rays to x-rays to radio waves to sound waves. And to see all of that visualized in colors that the human mind cannot comprehend could be a thing one would describe as the eye of God or another world that is indescribable and that once you come back from that, the real world just seems immaterial and nothing else matters anymore because you've seen everything else as if uh, maybe you're taken out of Plato's cave all of a sudden and have to return back and tell the other guys, hey, there's this other stuff out there. Oh, you don't believe me? Well, you got to die. So, bye. That's not part of Plato's cave, obviously. But <laughs> Spark Notes edition of Plato's cave. Yeah, yeah. You can die. You <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've seen the shadows your whole life, then you see what's cast the shadows, then you come back and tell your buddies who only know shadows, hey guys, th those are just shadows, there's other stuff over here. We don't believe you. And in this version of that allegory, he just says, well, then I'm going to kill you all. Yeah, so the black rainbow seems to be, to the light and color spectrum, what the shadow self is to consciousness. There you go. It's all of the unknown, unseeable, unacknowledged things until those things are confronted. The creepy quote and or speech that he gives here in his embraced shadowed form is, I see what others cannot see. I looked into the eye of God and it looked right back through me. It looked through everything. It was so, so, so beautiful, like a black rainbow. Hey, that's the name of the show. <laughs> it shows me. It chose to reveal itself to me. And then mm. he goes in to seemingly just crush the skull of his wife. <laughs> and she pleads for him to let her go. And he just says, I'm not going to let you go. And then his voice gets all distorted and garbled like he's swan from Phantom of the Paradise. Mm. And says, I'm going to set you free. So this is an interesting yeah, dissolve into... This idea of what he just did to Arborea as well, right, is he, he set him free from those mortal trappings and set him on a path perhaps to get answers in a way that one cannot get answers on the mortal plane. Mm. And he's now going to do that to his wife. So thanks, buddy. Oh. Just looking out for everybody, you know? Yeah. And I, yeah, he wants to look out for Elena, too. We go back to the clinic. Elena is in bed. The pyramid, that white pyramid, it's pulsing somewhere. And so maybe its influence on her is not solid right now. She gets up out of bed and she begins to slowly head out. And she's almost caught by a, a sentient knot. Sentient? What? Did we settle on a pronunciation here? Sentient knot? Uh, a knot. And evades it by going through the vents. The best set in cinematic history uh, yeah. <laughs> from a compositional level. Yeah, I mean, the first thing it made me think of was Die Hard, of John McClane going through the air vents, and there's just a gigantic hole or a gigantic tower of the vents he has to jump around in. But this is also, I think, a reference to Dark Star that has a similar shot 
and set up mm-hmm. where Elena, she goes, just climbs around all the vents and gets back in. And there are a lot of pipes in this vent area that have the colors of the rainbow on them. So it's like, yeah. It's so great. So it's this concrete cube. Mm-hmm. It's also where we start to feel the cube references cube. a little bit too. She's going to open these little square entrances and crawl through air ducts to the next sort of square room. <laughs> and this particular room is going to be all gray concrete that is flat on all of the sides and just plummets straight down. And we are going to get a completely straight on aerial above shot. Very vertigo inducing uh, shot. It's so anxiety inducing. It's amazing. (laughs) And we're going to see her pull herself out of the air duct into this just open space and cling to the wall as she shimmies around one side of it to get to the parallel other continuation of the air duct. And most of it's going to be gray concrete, except for those five pipes that Mm -hmm. are colored red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Mm -hmm. And we see the depth of this space below with this one particular red blinking light that actually looks very similar to the optics machines at the eye doctor where you have to look in and sort of find that red light and that blinking. And that's going to create another interesting component of depth where we really just feel the depth of that space because of the way that that light is traveling from below. It's so anxiety inducing. It's so masterfully done. And the wind is blowing a little bit because I was trying to figure out if they actually did film this at those particular angles, if she really was standing up or if she was actually kind of crawling along a horizontal surface. But the way that the gravity is interacting with the wind, it really does make it look like she is standing vertically on this plummeting thing. So I don't know if they used map paintings or if they used wire rigs that they later got rid of, but... Uh, there was a interview I saw or listened to uh, Panos on a podcast. I think it was the American Society of Cinematography podcast where he explained that this is a reference to Dark Star. And in Dark Star, they achieved this shot by having an actor lay on a horizontal surface laying flat and just kind of shimmying along to create the illusion mm-hmm. of depth. But here they decided to, because you know of Elena's hair, they couldn't really do that convincingly. So it's an upright thing, and it's kind of a green screen effect going on here, like where the depth is a mat mm-hmm. that they inserted, uh, but the ledge that she's moving along is real and everything, and they are shooting mm-hmm. downwards and like blasting her with wind, so that it, the wind and the gravity look real. It makes one feel very anxious. But not nearly as anxious as one feels when Elena then emerges into the holding cell of what appears to be a radiation burn victim who is just burnt and disfigured and terrifying to look at as she is trying to slowly, quietly make her way to the door to get away from this very dangerous looking individual who is wrapped up in all of the straight jackets and can only crawl slowly after her, the white pyramid flashes again she crumples over and has to now crawl herself and can barely get away from this guy now random person here who is wrapped up in all these bandages and looks like he has a lot of radiation burns why would this person be here yeah so he doesn't really look dangerous he looks really like a victim (laughs) (laughs) well he keeps trying to bite elena so he just seemed dangerous to me yeah he's set in a cell just like everybody else so he does seem to be yet another 
just person in this institute. So we're starting to get a larger picture that it's not just Elena that's being kept in this institute in these sterile rooms, that there might be a whole bunch of different individuals getting subjected to different stuff. And another big Cold War era research experimentation thing was radiation, or more specifically, what radiation would do to the human body in different capacities. And it is that, yeah, we might need to find a movie that we can just talk about radiation experiments, because <laughs> that's another thing that I weirdly know too much about. But it is astounding, the different things that they did with or the AEC. More than MK Ultra was a little bit more with mind control and expansion, which radiation was never really a big component of. But the AEC, the Atomic Energy Commission that later becomes the DOE, is really going to be the ones frontlining the radiation experiments. They were obsessed with feeding people fallout, first of all. That's like one of the things uh. that they would pair with like the Quaker Oatmeal Company and feed a bunch of iodized oatmeal to like school children in Pennsylvania. Jesus. Or down in the Vanderbilt Research Center in Nashville, they went through a period of time of giving radioactive, like kind of iodine tablets to pregnant women. So once again, this kind of pregnancy thing of what would this, you know, like have on your fetus? Good Lord. There was, yeah, like a lot of individuals that would get radium or just radioactive materials administered to them and in injections in hospital sites that usually happened to a lot of people with not as much power, so people in lower economic brackets or orphans were a big uh, target, prisoners, people of color, especially like in St. Louis, there's a lot of really troubling experiments that went on with radiation. So just like across the board, like people just getting injected or force fed or signed up to just take these tablets. And so that seems to be kind of a little bit of a nod here in this brief flash of a moment of this amalgam that we have going on in this institute just seems to be this one large physical metaphor for all of the fucked up research that was happening during the Cold War. And this gentleman does look like he is the recipient of some of the more egregious radioactive experiments. In another elevator, Elena heads up and is blocked by a sentient And we think, oh, Lena's had it, she's been caught, but this sentient removes its helmet, and when I first saw this, this was the one jump scare I had, because Elena looks up, and we cut to this ghastly, ghostly white child's face that's looking back yeah, down at freaky. her. and it's, it's, it's like a dead baby. Yeah, it is. It's creepy. <laughs> and, a dead, pale, blue, bloated baby. Yeah. With... So, um, hollow, vacant eyes you know, staring into the abyss. One of those babies that had it ate its, its Wheaties and Fallouts. <laughs> Grow up to be strong, oh, Well, I don't think this is like the direct reference here, but there was like one particular sub project called Project Sunshine. Oh boy. And it did involve government agents unburying the bodies of like baby and infant corpses to see what effect radiation in the area had had on these, like, baby corpses. So that was, like, a big ethics issue in a different way because it wasn't, like, testing live subjects, but they mm -hmm. also didn't necessarily alert the family and next of kin, like, hey, we're actually going to, like, unbury your infant corpses and mm -hmm. run some tests on them and, like, desecrate the bodies and stuff. And so that was a big lawsuit at one point. 
so that might be where this little sense you not face came from was maybe some project sunshine maybe they were taking those radioactive babies and creating sentient trappings <laughs> i mean they weren't historically it's not what they were doing with the corpses but maybe that's what's happening here in this sentient space we're now into elena's escape uh moment <laughs> her escape period because she slowly goes through the employee break room of arborea and there is some like latin music playing yeah i mean it was interesting when she goes into this break room that we have this spanish-speaking radio disc jockey going on here once again the mk ultra cia projects really outsourced to like border areas so having the Allen Memorial Institute in Canada even though it was a CIA project and they also had some in Mexico and so I'm wondering if that's kind of a nod to this idea of this border space that's happening and or yeah possibly more connections to Noriega's involvement in the drug trade in the CIA at the time if this is maybe an institute he theoretically had a hand in in this movie it is cool though this break room there's something really cool and spooky about just the mundaneness of this break room that you're like there is a staff that works here there is a group of people that are complicit in the unethical testing of these human subjects also historically accurate but chilling at the same time very true she goes through this break room, goes through, walks through a greenhouse area, through another cellar, and is finally emerges and walks out of the greenhouse. And this greenhouse building looks really badass. It is badass. It's the Bloedel Floral Conservatory, and it is located in Vancouver in Queen Elizabeth Park. It's super cool. Yeah. The interior, when she's walking around the greenhouse, that is also the same conservatory yeah i like that it's it's very rare that awesome looking buildings in movies are the same thing interior and exterior i, I know right i was so like that's... okay we're just gonna shoot them both inside and out yeah. but yeah it's got this cool glass dome over the top of it with like this beveled glass it's very cool it's pretty badass and as elena is walking outside and feeling the dirt under her feet for possibly the first time in her life also, possibly for the first time in her life, she begins to smile a little bit and is feeling a little bit of freedom, finally. But this freedom is off, is might be short-lived because Niall, now in you know, killer psycho mode, is going through the clinic and looking for Elena with a huge knife in his hand. Knife, dagger, something. He calls it the that he devil's... Calls the devil's teardrop. The devil's teardrop. This so thing looks dramatic. terrifying. Yeah. And he goes to her bed. She's not there. He sniffs the bed really hard, just taking in that scent of Alina, I suppose. Maybe he's like in a tracking dog. Yeah, he's like a bloodhound getting the scent. And he kind of does have the scent, but not from smell, but from the tracker that the sentient put in Alina's neck earlier in the movie, because now Niall goes to his car and has a very rudimentary looking radar tracker that he's going to use to find Alina. And Alina has made it pretty far off. Uh, I guess she walks really fast. I don't know. But she's way out in the forest now, walking through the grass, looking up at the stars, potentially looking at the night sky for the first time in her life and just slowly taking everything in. This is where time like halts yeah. for me, is when she's trying to step out onto this grass from the conservatory. Suddenly I'm like, just take a fucking step, girl. Like, let's just go. go. And it's weird because up until then, everything has seemed like this slow pace, and yet it hadn't gotten to me. 
there was something meditative, there was something beautiful about the abstract art. But the second she leaves that conservatory building and the neon goes away, those contrasting colors go away, because I think that's a part of it, right? Yeah. Your brain is so interestingly optically engaged by the color palette that it actually keeps your brain active in a very similar way that like fast-paced editing in Fight Club does. But the sudden absence of this simultaneous contrast all of a sudden slows things down. Yeah. And she's going to take her sweet ass time just walking through the forest, like sleeping in the grass, looking up at the stars. Meanwhile, this dude is smelling her bed like some sort of tracking hound from hell and following her little tracker that got injected by the sentient as he goes and finds her adjacent to a group of dudes who are in the forest. Yeah. You know what this movie needed? This movie needs this. Okay, I'm going to stop that. That song is called Angel Dust by the 80s extreme heavy metal group uh, Venom, and it's being listened to by these these two fucking guys. These fucking guys. Guys in the credits are credited as Fat Hesher and Skinny Hesher. And I learned today what a Hesher is. What is a Hesher? That's a Canadian term for a diehard fan of heavy metal music. Huh. Yeah. All right. And God, seeing them is just so jarring because, as we've said, this movie is trance-like. And maybe it's deliberate that we are taken out of that trance with this scene that's just, you know, we've had all this beautiful imagery going on for an hour and a half. And now we're just watching two guys listen to a cassette around a fire, a campfire. One guy's like, yeah, I think a girl wanted to have sex with me. You've got a small dick. I'm going to go take a piss. Like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? And the scene is so strange. It doesn't really add anything. Nothing changes because of what happens to these two guys. The skinny guy, we watch him, true to his word, goes to take a piss. But there's Barry Nile with the devil's teardrop, stabs this guy. Skinny Hesher's dead. Fat Hesher is just, yo. Yo, looking around scared. Yo, yo. Oh, there's Barry again with the devil's teardrop. Uh, just asking him, hey, did you did you have sex with Elena? I don't know who Elena is. Nah, he still dies. That's just how it goes. Well, he sniffs him and comes to the conclusion, like, you clearly have been fucking Elena. And that's not true, because she's been asleep on the grass in some other clearing. Yep. But it's kind of like this reality slap to the face. Yeah. But here we've been in this beautiful trance simultaneous contrast world of transcendental consciousness expansion like we've been we've been trying to reach that state of nirvana and it's definitely like coming down from a drug trip where you're just faced with the mundane baseness of reality and, and these the magic guys goes are away. definitely baseless mundane reality personified and you realize this experiment in expanding consciousness does not work because reality always gets in the way. The uh, trappings of the mortal world. So perhaps, yeah, this jarring slap with reality is a very deliberate statement by Mr. Cosmatos. I mean, it does feel that way, right? Mm. Like, there's a very cold, stark transition in tone very quickly. Yeah. And not just tone of plot, but, like, the actual physical temperature of the movie. 
it's even odder that it is just the final few moments of the movie. We mm -hmm. just get taken out of the trance and put into this world of mundane reality, and it feels all the more foreign for it that we just get this weird, quick glimpse at non-neon-lit forests. And we have to listen to this heavy metal music that it's unlike anything else that we've heard in the rest of the movie is so jarring as well. So... Yeah. yeah. So it is a curious decision. It does feel a little bit more classic slasher as well, that suddenly we have this killer who is out prowling the woods with his knife, his little devil's teardrop, and just cutting down people who he finds in the forest. There's like this weird 80s slasher vibe there, which if we're going back into the Jungian psychology shadow self is the ultimate manifestation is this pure psychopathic killer that becomes something inhuman. It's just like this boogeyman, as it were. So he is just riding and coasting on pure id at this point, pure dark shadow id. And he's going to come across Elena, and they are going to have this eye gaze standoff, and he is going to try to step forward, but she's going to freeze him with her super psychic powers because the triangle's not there to fuck with her mojo anymore. And as he tries to run in place, he is going to slip, bash his head on a rock, and no more scientist Niles. He did. The patriarchy has been momentarily thwarted. Because <laughs> he's like, come to me, Elena, I'll take you home. And she's like, I don't want to go home. I would rather, after I snap your neck into just traverse the street here off to some middle America house. That has the TV on. That just, has the TV on. One house has a bright light. just follow the light. <laughs> and she's like, well, I'm going to that one. She's like, the only thing I've known so far are TVs, so I'm just going to go towards that TV, go gently towards that good light mm -hmm. of American broadcast television. I'm thinking, like, okay, this is an ambiguous ending in and of itself because, like, what's the first thing that... The 1980s, 83 family is probably going to do gonna, when this child shows up in a nightgown on the porch. Call the police. They're going to call child services yeah. or the police. And she's just going to go right back into <laughs> a different type of They're going to look up and see, has anyone reported uh, someone missing nearby? Oh, this institute does. And this girl appears to be someone who belongs to an institute. So back you go. Yeah, I mean, she might not necessarily go back to that one because now it seems like most of the people involved in it are dead and or dying. But, well, there is a break room, so there's probably more people involved than just Niles, yeah. who we see. Cause... This is all happening on a Saturday, so they just weren't there. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how large this runs. I mean, if it's an MK Ultra thing, then it's a government institution thing, and there's lots of agents, and so she gets put back yeah. in the government system. That's not going to bode well for her, but I don't see a family not calling child services or social services when she shows up on the steps. So, yeah, she's probably still fucked. Yeah. We have the credits, and you wouldn't really think this is the kind of movie where you have a post-credit sequence, but there is an after-credit sequence that's very strange, where we see an action figure of Ascension Knot on the ground, and there's light from the TV hitting it, and we kind of hear some distorted voice asking us if we read. It's like, do you what? read? I have not seen this scene. Yeah, it's a, I've seen this movie like seven times. I've never watched past the credits. Uh, yeah, I fuck? only on a whim. I just like scrubbed past the credits to see, you know, I think the very end of it. And then, yeah, there's this quick like 
seven-second scene is there of this little action figure on the ground and the TV saying, do you read? Interesting. I don't know what it so, means. I I guess that means, well, what TV are they? Is we don't see the it, TV. Well, it's just this of. one shot of the floor and this little red action figure on the on the floor and the flickering light of the television is falling over it and you just hear the TV announcer saying, do you read? I wonder if that's what's in the house that she's going to Maybe the TV. I'd have to like look at the carpets and see if that matched like a sort of mid-split level mm-hmm. in that subdivision. But also, you... yeah, it just seems to imply a larger institution, which would be mm-hmm. fitting with the MK Ultra kind of government feel. Be going to the houses where all the people who work at Arborea live at. And this is just some off-site, you know, housing for the employees. <laughs> and one of the it. things that all the families of the employees get are little action figures of the awesome sentient Yeah, no, that's true. This is the subdivision right around this research institute. So there is a good chance that these are possible employees that <sighs> live in the subdivision. So, yeah, yeah shit doesn't bode well, mm-hmm. basically, for this environment. But you know what does bode well? Watching this movie, and by God, we did, and we loved it. So, yeah, one of the things in terms of that the quote that I mentioned earlier that Penis did weigh in on what the Black Rainbow mm-hmm. was, ultimately. And so there are a couple of things that Penis Cosmatos has always been drawn to in his themes, according to him in interviews. And part of those is just this worry or resistance to the idea of control, both individual control or control over other individuals or a type of mass governmental control. And we do get both of those theming very heavily within this. And he also has very negative opinions about the New Age Enlightenment, quote-unquote, boomer era that happened in the 60s and 70s, this idea of trying to unlock consciousness through drug use and... As a result, this movie does become a very paranoid, dark reflection of what can go wrong in attempting all of the above. But his quote on the subject was, I look at Arborea as kind of naive. He had the best of intentions of wanting to expand human consciousness, but I think his ego got in the way of that, and ultimately it turned into a poisonous, destructive thing, because Arborea is trying to control consciousness and control the mind. There is a moment of truth in the film where the whole thing starts to disintegrate because it stops being about their humanity and becomes about an unattainable goal. That is the Black Rainbow, trying to achieve some kind of unattainable state that is ultimately probably destructive. So a little different than my interpretation of a unconceivable sights of a rainbow made up of everything else in the electromagnetic spectrum. However, there are people who have theorized what it would be like, you know, if we could see X-rays or gamma rays and the answer is it would be very bad for us because we wouldn't be able to see much else. So maybe trying to gain more sights would just be bad for us. Trying to gain something unattainable is just destructive. There are a couple of transhumanist implants in the scene that do actually allow visual access to infrared spectrums, which is kind of crazy and cool. Neil um, Bassan is one of the the people who can now see infrared Hmm. because of his 
cerebral hack, yeah. which is it, very it cool read. and weird. Not so too bad. Not too bad. It is possibly within, yeah, the grasp of human potential, but there is something interesting yeah, about this idea of perhaps pushing too hard into that space, that shadow space. So top five, top five, top five. I think my top five are going to be pretty straightforward here because we do have limited cast and crew to work with. Uh, my number five is Michael J. Rogers, who played Barry Nile. And I think he does a really great job here. Like I said, like how many other cast members can I praise for their performance? But I think what's impressive about what he does here is that he plays Barry Nile as very sinister, very cruel, and very tired of all the bullshit that Arbori has been preaching. But he's able to also transition into a, for lack of a better word, sympathetic character of someone who has been scarred and hurt by something a little outside of their control, out, scarred and hurt by an experiment uh, by a madman, so to speak. And you can feel for him in brief moments. I mean, and then he just... He goes psycho killer on everybody, and then you're like, well, fuck you, dude. That's taking a little bit too far. But I like the range that he gives the character and the motivations the character has, and he he portrays that very well. So, well done, Mr. Michael J. Rogers, who I have never seen in anything else. Yeah, so honorable mention goes out to the Cold War. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Cold War. And really just providing the setting for us to explore this movie and all the other fucked up things that we get out of the Cold War to make movies about. Thanks, MKUltra. I guess my number five is just going to go to the cast. Sure. This is a very small skeleton cast, Mm -hmm. and they all do their thing. They all bring it. They all have very subtle, slow performances, but they remain very watchable. So they all do their thing. But it's not my most favorite thing about this. Mm. But yeah, they, they did well. All right, well... What's your number four? Uh, my number four is You're Wrong, because my number four is Eva Bourne, who plays Elena. And what I liked about her performance was kind of, well, one, I like how sublime it is and how, you know, she's playing it very low-key, but she's getting a lot, of, a lot of cross in minor looks. And what fascinated me about this is that Panos Cosmatos said that she was the cast member he talked to the least, when she came in, she seemed to immediately know what the character was all about. And aside from a few blocking notes, he almost never gave her any direction and just let her do her thing throughout the entire movie. So what you're watching is just kind of an unfiltered vision from a performer to create this character. And I find that very fascinating and, geez, wish that could have happened when I was acting. So <laughs> I guess, number you know, makes the list because I'm envious. So you're saying you wish what could have happened when you were acting is that you would have been good? Is that what you're saying? Who's your number four? <laughs> My number four is Panos Cosmatos. Mm-hmm. He hasn't done very many movies, but the movies that he has done <laughs> have been astoundingly original and visual and trippy. Like, he's got a cool mind. He's got a cool eye. Make more movies, yeah. Thanos Cosmetos. Get on it, man. Just, just do us that favor. Just just make some more of these. Yeah. My number three is Jeremy Schmidt, who wrote the score to this film. And I just love everything about the score of this film. I don't know whose decision it was to put a random Venom song in there, but I guess it just had to happen. I don't think that was Jeremy Schmidt's decision. His decisions, his uh, compositions for this movie were all fantastic. 
heightened everything. That song that we hear when the Cinchonaut is being program run, Cinchonaut is the, the name of that song that plays in that scene, and it's just one of the greatest pieces of synthwave music I've ever heard. So, yeah, everything Jeremy Schmidt did enhanced this movie so well. You're number three. Yeah, number three, Jeremy Schmidt. All right. The score of this film, as well as we'll toss them in alongside the Foley artists and sound mixers that worked on this, there are some really cool moments of sound. The little beeps that the technology does, mm-hmm. the garbled voices that happen over the phone lines. There's really a lot of cool sound mixing across the board that happens in this film, but a lot of it is really just Jeremy Schmidt's score. So, fuck yeah. All right. My number two goes to Norm Lee, the cinematographer. It was his uh, push to make the film happen on 35mm. Panos wanted to do it as well. However, financially, they weren't too sure if they could do that. But Norm was the one who came forward with this idea of, okay, let's shoot the film on 35mm 2 perf. You use much less of the film, and it will help create this very grainy image that was what they wanted to do all along. So because of that, Panos was able to have this beautiful, grainy image going on throughout the film. And had Norm not done that, and had he not been attaching lights to the camera to create those lens flares and all the amazing in-lens and in-camera distortions, this movie would not look nearly as amazing as it does. So, good job, Mr. Lee. Though, he would not be the cinematographer on Mandy, oddly enough. Uh, Panos would get a different guy. And it shows. Hmm. Mm. It does. I mean, Mandy has great cinematography, but... It's a little different, and it is filmed digitally, so you not... don't get like the grit and the grain that we we get here, and you lose maybe that organic feel that we got from Beyond the Black Normally. Rainbow. Yeah. yeah. My number two is the set design. Right on. The okay. sets are minimal, mm-hmm. but they are so effective. Like the ways in which certain spaces are constructed, there's so many reflective surfaces that it's really cool and astounding, which also kind of once again taps into this theme of identity a lot. There's going to be a lot of times where characters are walking by stuff and they're reflected in this, yeah, shadow self or other self or multiple self ways. And just creating those reflective, shiny surfaces off of these plastic materials, because they're doing it with materials that aren't necessarily mirrors. They're just compositing a lot of different reflective surfaces. They are going to have a lot of rounded windows, Mm. which is really going to add to that mid-century atomic design of this facility, just finding those rounded glass kind of edges There's that crazy floating bed of Elena's in her room. There's the minimal strip down of just having her floating bed and then just this stacked line of flat screen TVs embedded into the wall. Like, and those goddamn rainbow pipes in that (laughs) cement room. Everything about the set choices are working. Like, it's just an astounding example of minimal set design turned into abstract. Yeah. Many of the positive reviews and essays I saw in this film would often compare the sets and the look of many shots to you know, Stanley Kubrick, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Though oddly, I never once saw uh, Cosmatos list Kubrick as an influence. He listed a lot of other influences, but he never mentioned Stanley Kubrick, which I found interesting. But he still does create this 
beautiful, sterile environment in so many of these uh, shots, which I guess is that's more on the set designer. So perhaps the set designers in, in <laughs> big influence was Stanley Kubrick, not necessarily an influence for Panos. So who knows? Well, I think Stanley Kubrick is also taking a lot from some of the abstract art movements that are going to happen in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. A lot of 70s naturalist architecture, even before that, a lot of cubism stuff kind of comes in and this certain form of symmetry and natural light. And so it might also just be that Kubrick was heavily influenced by the art periods and the architecture periods that are going on in the 60s and 70s. And then Panos, Cosmatos, and the set designers, when they are looking back for visual references of how can we make an institute that is the epitome of this altered 60s, 70s aesthetic for this research institute, that they're pulling from those same minimalist modern designs. So it could just be that they both are pulling from the same sources is another possibility yeah. as to why he might not. Because I did also see him in an interview mention, asked about a bunch of other films that do resonate with the film, that he said, there's a lot of films that this probably looks like, but that was unintentional and just kind of happened, I guess. <laughs> so there were a lot of films that he hadn't necessarily seen or drawn visual inspiration from. Yeah. And I'm glad that we've spent all this time talking about uh, Panos, because, yeah, my number one, Panos Cosmatos, director and writer of this film, I think he's really helped my list because the story that he had to tell about where his inspiration came from and his childhood of going through all the, like his father had so many beta tapes of movies taped off of television. I got into film a lot as a child because my grandfather constantly taped movies off of TV and had hundreds of VHS tapes uh, filled with movies. Every time I would go to visit them, I would watch a new movie and that was the start of my own journey into cinema and film. So I just relate a lot to where Panos is coming from in his introduction into the film world and also the stories he tells of seeing those VHS artworks and trying to imagine what the movie was because same way, I did that all the time myself. And the fact that after his father and his mother passed away, he inherited this source of money and Panos... He decided, you know what, I'm going to do something with this, and I'm going to make some art, man. I'm going to make art my way, and if people like it, great. If not, mm, that's cool. No, I do really enjoy Panos Cosmatos' sensibilities. You would have been higher on my list. It's just there's so many goddamn masterful Is it the beard? things about it's this the beard, movie. It's the beard, isn't it? He has a weird beard. No, it's, it's not the beard. Oh, okay. It's just that... The cinematography well, on this film comes in at number one for me. Sure. That as, yeah, is visionary, as much as I support and embrace Panos Cosmatos' vision, I have to give, yeah, more credit to the beauty of the cinematography in this film. It's, yeah, I mean, we've talked about it throughout the light, the color theory, the angles, the composition, the abstract art that is created out of every single individual insert shot. It's just all astounding. I just love this film just because of the visual feast that it provides. And yeah, so unfortunately you and I both have that in common where we tend to, <laughs> if the cinematography is good, we're in. 
And yeah, this film could be about anything, and I, I wouldn't Unfortunately, care. Unfortunately, you and I have a lot in common, and it's, it's disturbing. Yeah, whatever the film's about, like, I am in if it looks like this. Yes. And that is largely the cinematographer. So, number one. Yeah. Norm Lee. Get it. Right on. Well, uh, I mean, wow. Yeah, so that's all the colors, and beyond, I suppose, of the black rainbow. Good times. Good, beautiful, candy-lit times. So, yeah. Those of you who want to get high and press the limitations of your shadow self-consciousness and watch this movie, I support you. Keep putting in the good fight. But alas, for now, we must, sadly, return to the world of sobriety. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side rainbows are visions but only illusions and rainbows have nothing to hide so we've been told and some choose to believe it I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Who said that every wish would be heard and answered? When wished on the morning star Somebody thought of that And someone believed it Look what it's done so far What's so amazing That keeps us stargazing And what do we think we might see Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me, all of us under its spell, we know that it's probably magic. Have you been half asleep, and have you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name Is this the sweet sound that calls the young sailors? The voice might be one and the same I've heard it too many times to ignore it It's something that I'm supposed to be Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism.
Спайлс!